0: you are listening to Holy Heresy, a podcast that explores the evolution of faith in these challenging times. Whether you have a lot of faith, a little faith, absolutely no faith, or are of another faith, it is our hope that these podcasts will help you find your place in the ongoing conversation that has been evolving forever. This series on banned books is brought to you by First Congregational Church of Los Angeles.
1: Why George Orwell chose the year 1984 for his genius dystopian novel is unknown. A popular claim is that it's a simple inversion of the year 1948, the year he completed the novel, to remind of the immediacy of totalitarianism's threat. Regardless, 1984 remains kind of a a fateful year in our collective imagination, Though I've always been rather fond of it, as it was the year I was born and just as importantly, the year Purple Rain was released. (laughs) Americans that year reflected on how little of Orwell's vision, which had been famously banned for being pro-communist, had come to pass. While at the same time, many in the Soviet Union who'd gotten their hands on this book that had been banned for decades for being anti-communist wondered, how did Orwell know so well? Yet the author said his novel was not so much a prediction as it was a warning. Orwell regretted, quote, the horrors of emotional nationalism disguised as patriotism and a tendency to disbelieve in the existence of, of, of objective truth because all the facts have to fit in with the words and prophecies of some infallible furor, End quote. He explained that 1984 was not an attack on a specific government, but a satire of the totalitarian tendencies in Western societies. He said of his work, The moral to be drawn from this dangerous nightmare situation is a simple one. Don't let it happen. It depends on you. Imagine how surprised Mr. Orwell would be today. The irony was not lost on me this week that as I researched articles on 1984, I repeatedly and mindlessly accepted all cookies on websites. Which of course allows sites to remember and track and sell our information to advertisers so that we can be targeted appropriately on our next visit. George Packer writes, we pass our days under the nonstop surveillance of a telescreen that we bought at the Apple store, carry with us everywhere and tell everything to without any coercion by the state. The Ministry of Truth, he continues, is Facebook, Google, and cable news. We have met Big Brother, and he is us. We consent to these platforms' algorithms that recycle what they've learned of our shopping preferences, our likes and dislikes, our political and ideological persuasions, and effectively reinforce them each time we open an app or browser. While indeed our technology can reinforce the best of our human capacity for compassion, connection, and love, it can also reinforce and exploit our basest instincts and prejudice. After the horrendous shooting in Buffalo last weekend, which resulted in the tragic deaths of 10 black Americans, news outlets reported that the 18-year-old white supremacist shooter Like every other recent far right assailant, cited the internet as the starting place for their journeys towards radicalization. We've witnessed governments successfully manipulate election outcomes through social media and have heard phrases and terms coined that could have been lifted right out of 1984. What you're seeing and what you're reading is not what's happening, for instance. Alternative facts, post-truth, fake news. Our echo chambers keep us isolated from working toward the alleviation of our collective suffering or even agreeing upon what that is, keeping us ever mistrustful and dismissive of each other or anything that doesn't reinforce our views. Unfreedom today is voluntary. The state of mind that the party enforces through terror in 1984, where truth becomes so unstable that it ceases to exist, we now induce in ourselves. Totalitarian propaganda unifies control over all information until reality is what the party says it is. It is the goal of newspeak, to impoverish language so that politically incorrect thoughts are no longer possible. Today, the problem is too much information from too many sources, with a resulting plague of fragmentation and division. Not excessive authority, but its disappearance, which leaves ordinary people to work out the facts for themselves at the mercy of their own prejudice and delusion. I imagine even Orwell's shock at this stranger-than-fiction reality. It is a similar sentiment Cleopas and his companion carry on the seven-mile trek from Jerusalem to Emmaus. They walk the road of utter disbelief and sorrow, an unimaginable future now before them in the shadow of Jesus' cross, crucifixion among many of big brother Rome's ways of maintaining the Pax Romana. As the two go, Jesus, now an unrecognizable stranger, companions them. What are you discussing as you go, he asks. Are you the only one who hasn't heard about this Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet mighty in word and deed, who healed and loved and called us into a new commonwealth of peace, reconciliation and love? His salvation trespassed boundaries to ensure all were included in the embrace of God and restored to community. We had hoped he was the one to free us, but he was crucified. We had hoped. We had hoped we were finally through this pandemic. We had hoped that we could be done with the restrictions. We had hoped that something more substantive would have been done by now about the threat that white supremacist violence poses to this nation. We had hoped religious communities like the Taiwanese congregation in Laguna Woods would be the last place for premeditated murder. We had hoped never to see the dismantling of rights for voters or for women. We had hoped to go forward, not back. It's 2022. It's 2022. We had hoped in that relationship. We had hoped for more stability in our lives. We had hoped. It is profound that Jesus remains silent, letting the travelers process their sadness. His listening, perhaps speaking to them as Howard Thurman once did. I share with you the agony of your grief The anguish of your heart finds echo in my own. I know I cannot enter all you feel, nor bear with you the burden of your pain. I can but offer what my love does give, the strength of caring, the warmth of one who seeks to understand, the silent, storm-swept barrenness of so great a loss. This I do in quiet ways. That on your lonely path, you may not walk alone. The three arrive to Emmaus as the stranger walks on. Stay for supper, they implore. In an act of simple invitation and hospitality, they reveal the one who remains concealed from them yet. I imagine Jesus delighting in the moment. These are indeed. My followers. Then this stranger, their guest, becomes the host, taking bread, blessing, breaking, and sharing it. And in just four simple infinitives, Jesus is recognized and experienced. He disappears just as quickly, but that one moment is enough. The two, amazed, exhale, maybe laugh to themselves find some peace at last, and perhaps even the strength to reimagine the unexpected future now before them, to walk into it with faith and love and hope renewed, knowing they are never alone. Weren't our hearts burning on the road as we talked with him, they recall? It strikes me that there are three times in which to know any event, in rehearsal, at the time of the event, and in remembrance. In rehearsal, understanding is hindered by an inability to believe that the event will really occur, or that it will be so important. At the time of the event, understanding is hindered by the clutter and confusion of so much, so fast. But in remembrance, the non-seriousness of rehearsal and the busyness of the event give way to recognition and understanding. Give way to an awareness, even, how an event was sacramental, a means through which something of the divine was revealed. It could be a wedding, a trip, a conversation with friends, or a simple meal with a stranger. Become Christ at a table. To see what is in front of one's nose needs a constant struggle, Orwell wrote. Perhaps that struggle always begins in memory. Memory of times and moments and thin places that brought to life, that made visible and tangible that love that companions us throughout existence. 1984 remains so vitally important today, I think, because it's one person's struggle to remember and hold on to what is real and valuable, to hold on to the self and whatever reminds the soul that it is alive and precious. Sanity is not statistical, Winston thinks one night as he drifts off to sleep. Stones are hard, Water is wet. Objects unsupported fall toward the earth's center. Freedom, he reminds himself, is the freedom to say that two plus two make four, even though the party will force him to agree that two and two make five. Followers of Christ, in remembering that night in Emmaus, call to mind and insist what we know is true in a world that would convince us to look out only for ourselves, how love makes strangers into friends, how simple acts of hospitality, of eating together at the same table can help divisions brought by unknowing and unseeing dissolve into thin air, helping us recall each other's belovedness. Or how falling speechless and listening to truly understand another's pain can be the silence through which the world might be saved. How using our privilege and laying down what we can for each other resists the death-dealing ways of our present When I first read 1984 in high school, I remember the crushing despair I felt at the end. Winston and Julia, after effective torture by Big Brother in Room 101, turn on each other and turn in each other, as Winston, whose journey of resistance throughout the novel ends with his declaration of love not for Julia, but for Big Brother— you know, as I reread the ending this week for the first time since high school, a new thought surfaced. For every Winston or Julia, there was likely another unknown on their own journey of resistance. For every one that Big Brother got to and finally crushed, another's hope was germinating in secret unnamed strangers quietly going about, fiercely remembering and holding on to who they are, stubbornly loving and companioning others on the road. In our world full of strangers, Henri Nouwen wrote, we witness a painful search for a hospitable place where life can be lived without fear and where community Can be found. I am so grateful that First Church is such a place for so many. As I was reminded this week, it is not only who we hope in, but it's also who we hope with that matters. And in heavy times, hope is the light that will guide us through to a kinder more loving more just and peaceful future whether we will make it to echo or well depends on you and the help of the one who journeys with us unwaveringly said julian of norwich all will be well and all will be well and all manner of things shall be well. For there is a fierce love moving through the universe that holds us fast and will never let us go. Go then and journey courageously, will you? Leaving more than just crumbs of hope and love in your wake. Companioning those you meet along the way. So that 2022 might be remembered as a year, it all changed for good. Amen.
0: If you have appreciated what you have heard, we invite you to join the conversation in person or online each week. We also invite you to make a financial gift to help First Church continue being a community. That reminds us, how much we are loved by our creator. To donate, go to fccla.org slash give and share this podcast with the people you know that need to hear they are loved exactly as they are.